Episode 5 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 1.4, Armed Conflict on the Journey to and in the Promised Land. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this podcast, we will discuss what Lehi and Nephi may have learned about conflict on their journey to and then once they arrived in the Promised Land. I had previously said that this would be done in two episodes, but as there is so much supposition associated with what follows, both can fit within one episode. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now. Let us begin. Lehi and Nephi brought with them to the writing of the Book of Mormon three environments of conflict. The first is the environment of their nativity, which we discussed in some detail in the previous episode. The second was the environment of their travels in the wilderness. The third was the environment of their new residency. We are talking about the second and third environments in this episode, which present some challenges. We don't know where they journeyed, or where they resided. We know a couple of facts that give us reason to make educated guesses, but this is not as certain as knowing where Jerusalem was, or is, for example. With respect to the journey, Nephi tells us about the travels in the following references. From 1 Nephi chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, quote, And it came to pass, that he departed into the wilderness, and he left his house and the land of his inheritance, and his gold and his silver and his precious things, and took nothing with him, save it were his family and provisions and tents, and departed into the wilderness. And he came down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea, and he traveled in the wilderness in the borders which are nearer the Red Sea, and he did travel in the wilderness with his family. And it came to pass that when he had traveled three days in the wilderness, he pitched his tent in a valley by the side of a river of water. Quote. The journey began at the area around Jerusalem and continued to the Red Sea and then continued for three days beyond meeting the Red Sea, or at least this is my interpretation, as it would take significantly more than three days to get to the Red Sea from Jerusalem. There are two ways to count this journey. One is that the family moved to the ancient city of Elah at the northern end of the Gulf of Aqaba, where sits the modern city of Aqaba, Jordan, and then continued south along the coast to the south-southeast. Two is that the family traveled through the Sinai Peninsula and met the northern end of the Gulf of Suez, and then traveled along the coast on the Egyptian side, again in a south-southeast direction. I lean toward option one for reasons that will become clearer in a couple of minutes. Nephi explains that once they left their camp in the Valley of Lemuel, they continued their journey as expressed in 1 Nephi chapter 16, verses 13, 14, and 33 and 34. He says, quote, And it came to pass that we traveled for the space of four days, nearly a south-southeast direction, 
and we did pitch our tents again, and we did call the name of the place Shazer. And we did go forth again in the wilderness, following the same direction, keeping in the most fertile parts of the wilderness, which were in the borders near the Red Sea. And it came to pass that we did take our journey, traveling nearly the same course as in the beginning. And after we had traveled for the space of many days, we did pitch our tents again, that we might tarry for the space of a time. And it came to pass that Ishmael died, and was buried in the place which was called Nahum. Nephi explains the direction of travel as south-southeast. This could work for either of the two options described previously, as the western coastline of Arabia and the eastern coastline of Africa both follow a south-southeast orientation along the Red Sea. The Arabian option starts to seem more likely with the connection to an ancient set of ruins in the modern country of Yemen called something like Nehem. I am not trying to prove the Book of Mormon, so I am not going into the debate of whether or not Nehem is Nahum. But it is interesting. Nephi continues to provide orientation by saying the following in 1 Nephi 17, verse 1, quote, And it came to pass that we did again take our journey in the wilderness, and we did travel nearly eastward from that time forth. Close quote. You cannot turn east for any length of time if on the eastern coast of Africa. This is my primary reason for assuming that the families traveled in the Arabian Peninsula. This course leads the families to the land bountiful, where they build a ship, and then the journey continued, as described by Nephi in 1 Nephi chapter 18, verse 8 and verse 23, and I quote in part, And it came to pass, after we had all gone down into the ship, we did put forth into the sea, and were driven forth before the winds towards the promised land. And it came to pass that after we had sailed for the space of many days, we did arrive at the promised land, and we went forth upon the land, and did pitch our tents, and we did call it the promised land. Close quote. We do not know where Lehi landed in the promised land. Some have suggested a Mesoamerican theory for the Promised Land, and others have suggested a North American theory. I don't know, and I don't care to enter this debate. What I include in this episode is intended to challenge how a reader of the Book of Mormon may interpret the various words connected to conflict that are used in the record. What does battle mean? Is it the same if one considers the Assyrian army, or the Arabs, or the Aztecs, or the mound builders? The answer is probably not. I want to provide a spectrum of possible understandings of words like sword and armor that can inform a reader more than simply using an ancient Greek or Roman characterization of the words I also think that there are some historical reasons why Lehi headed toward Arabia rather than Egypt. I refer you to the previous episode where we briefly discussed Urijah the prophet, who fled to Egypt, was then captured, and returned to Judah for trial and execution. Lehi was probably aware of Urijah, and he may have wanted to avoid a similar fate. 
The rest of this episode gives information on conflict in Arabia and conflict in the Western Hemisphere. There is not much detail in the history of nomads of the Arabian Peninsula in Lehi's era. What is known in detail comes from the era of the rise of Islam and the great Arab conquests of the 7th century AD. Despite the dearth of information, there are several references to the martial prowess of the nomadic peoples of this region. In this episode, I draw on several events and occasions of conflict with the nomadic peoples of the Arabian Peninsula, and then I connect this information to the detailed accounts from much later events. This is certain to be inaccurate, but the similarities of conflict will provide a window into the nomadic world that Lehi moved through as his family journeyed south from Jerusalem to the land that Lehi's family called Bountiful. One of the great stories of conflict in the Old Testament is that of Gideon leading 300 against the powerful army of the Midianites in the book of Judges, chapter 6 through 8. This takes place sometime around 1100 BC or about 500 years before Lehi. In this story, the Midianites have come from the south and they have destroyed cities and tormented the Israelites. This is indicative of the philosophy of conflict that says that the nomadic and environmentally hardened people typically attack people in cities. The Midianites were nomadic herdsmen, and they earlier had clashes with the children of Israel as they journeyed for 40 years before entering the land of Canaan, in Numbers chapters 22, 25, and 31. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a high priest of the people of Midian, Exodus chapter 2, verse 16 and 21, and chapter 3, verse 1. The nomads gathered a large army and attacked the children of Israel and dominated them for seven years, as we're told in Judges chapter 6. Gideon raised a large army and was counseled by the Lord to select only a small group to lead against the large group of invaders. The small group used surprise to inflict shock on the encamped Midianites and caused them to both fight amongst themselves and then to flee the battlefield. There are numerous useful points in this story that can give a brief window into armed conflict of the people living in the Arabian Peninsula. First, the Midianites came from the northwestern portion of the Arabian Peninsula, the area just to the southeast of modern-day Aqaba, Jordan, in the general vicinity of one possible location of the Valley of Lemuel from 1 Nephi 2.14. Second, they moved with speed and they focused on destruction, capturing and killing herd animals and capture of booty. Much of the destruction caused was a result of a large group of pastoralists bringing their herds into the land of the Israelites. Additionally, their actions caused the Israelites themselves to flee their homes and live in caves and in the mountains. This was not a conquest, but a large raid seemingly designed to enrich the attacking force at the expense of the sedentary people. It is illustrative of this point that despite having been in the area for several years, when they were attacked by Gideon, the Midianites were not within the walls of the city, 
but they were encamped in a valley, just as they would have been back home in the desert. Third, the warriors were superstitious and easily affected by the supernatural, and they tended to associate great or surprising events with supernatural phenomena. The fact that they were surrounded by the Israelites and that they had been overwhelmed was seemingly attributed to just such a spiritual power rather than to a cunning stratagem. Additionally, the actions of Gideon met with the predictions of a dream of one of the Midianite warriors. The pursuit and destruction of the Midianite host was not a result of 300 Israelite warriors, but it was the combined host of numerous Israelite tribes that coalesced and pursued the frightened and fleeing enemy. In the Roman imperial era, a Roman army was sent into the Arabian Peninsula to secure Arabia Felix, or modern-day Yemen, for Rome. This army was led by the prefect of Egypt, as directed by Augustus Caesar, and the expedition lasted from 26 to 24 BC. The force traversed the peninsula from Egypt to the modern city of Aqaba and then to the current country of Yemen. This was along the ancient incense trail from Ela, or modern Aqaba, to Sheba. The army made it, but it couldn't last in that distant land. In fact, only a few straggling survivors of the expedition ever returned to report on the debacle. The Romans were overwhelmed by the nomadic raids on their columns and the impact of the heat and weather on their discipline and formations. The fighting ability of the nomadic Arab tribes that lived in this same region that Lehi had traveled through a few centuries earlier makes yet another point about what Lehi might have seen. In the 7th century AD, the prophet Muhammad did the historically unheard of accomplishment of unifying the Arab tribes of the Arabian Peninsula under the new religion of Islam, with himself as the messenger of God and the political leader of the unified community of believers. This unification broke apart shortly after Muhammad's death, only to be reformed under the first of the caliphs, or successors, of the prophet. A series of wars were fought to first unify the Arabs and then to reunify them. In these wars, there were several notes of importance. Often, battles began with a contest of champions. These contests, like those of the epic poem of Homer, were not designed to decide the battle, but rather they were a form of morale boost for each side. The contests of champions might continue for some time if one side had a particularly valiant warrior. Following the contest, the main battle began. The Muslim and non-Muslim Arab armies were based on a spear-wielding infantry. The warriors rode to the battlefield on camels, but they typically fought on foot. Mounted attacks, feints, withdrawals, and counterattacks were also common as horse-mounted and sometimes camel-mounted warriors tried to draw the opposing force into ill-timed attacks that were intended to overextend the force and leave them vulnerable. The British officer, who was also the commander of Jordan's Arab Legion, John Baggett Glubb, said of the Arab tribal warrior in his book The Great Arab Conquests, and I quote, 
Accustomed as we are to reading of incidents in the past centuries in which primitive tribes have been routed by small detachments of regular forces, we are inclined to regard tribal organization as utterly inefficient from a military standpoint. Yet it may, perhaps have been, the lack of modern weapons rather than the tribal system which was responsible for those defeats. When, however, the lance, the sword, and the bow were the principal weapons, the tribes could be nearly as well armed as the regular armies. They, moreover, already instinctively possessed that esprit de corps which professional armies are at such infinite pains to inculcate in their soldiers. As long as the tribal system survived, tribesmen fought infinitely better among quote, the sons of their uncles close quote, than in mixed groups among men of other tribes whom they regarded almost as foreigners. Close quote. He further added, quote, the Bedouin is characterized by one quality perhaps more than any other, his readiness to take the initiative in a tight corner without paying any attention to anyone else. Close quote. The nature of organization, fighting ability, and tactical strengths of the Arab tribesmen are important to note for several reasons. One is that this is indicative of the nomadic warrior. Another point is that this expresses some of the strengths of fighting in a tribal arrangement when in the modern world this strength is often overlooked. Finally, it must always be remembered that culturally the sons of Lehi were closer to the Arab nomadic warriors than they ever would be to the Roman soldiers or to European knights. The Arabs lived by the raid. It was not only important to them in terms of a strategy at the tactical level, but it was also a part of their means of expressing their cultural identity. It was important for the men to increase the wealth and security of the tribe, they often took it upon themselves to increase the family holdings by acquiring more assets through raids of neighboring tribes. The focus of the raids was to capture useful booty, animals, control of water sources, key terrain controlling trade routes, women, slaves, etc. Not on battles of annihilation. The raid was designed to capture and return with little or no loss of life. The emphasis of the activity was honor through risk and accomplishment, not slaughter. I need to be clear, violence has always been a part of war and armed conflict. Usually killing happened. The point here is that the focus of the event was not essentially killing, and not necessarily killing large numbers of people. Even in battles fought between large tribes involving hundreds or thousands of warriors, casualties were low in comparison to the imperial or state battles captured in Roman history or in the later religious and state wars of early modern Europe. The decisive point of a tribal battle was to demonstrate dominance and thereby force capitulation. The tribes did not fight to completely erase one another. The emphasis on dominance rather than annihilation is further demonstrated by the nature of Bedouin fortifications. Unlike European or Levantine fortifications of comparable periods, the Arab Bedouin fortifications were almost entirely defensive in nature, with little opportunity to mount offensive action from the fort itself. 
Sometimes the protection of a city may simply be that the outside houses were built immediately adjacent to each other, providing a continuous wall around the city or village. Typically, fortifications were built over a water source and were not designed to withstand sieges consisting of sophisticated siege engines. This is an example of the intent to deter aggression or annihilation and prevent capitulation. Raids were honorable affairs. They were an opportunity for the men to demonstrate their bravery and courage by risking injury and possibly death. The link between the ancient example of raids and the modern performance where inflicting casualties is the ideal is a change in view of the opponent. When the opponent was perceived as a peer tribe from the same culture, then these rules applied. But when the opponent is no longer a peer and is considered an outsider or an other, then the rules are different. The aspect of the raid that has direct application is the emphasis on proving oneself and bringing in resources to help the larger collective. The raid as described above is a part of the inter-tribal Arab fighting that was common before the unification under the Prophet Muhammad. It would again become common later in Islamic history. At the time of Lehi, there was no unified Arab leadership or state. Each tribe was its own polity and had a boundary defined by that area it could dominate. The larger battles fought under an Arab style of combat were usually a flowing affair that might last for days. Unlike a Roman or Greek battle that would see a single clash seeking almost immediate decision, the Arabs often allowed a battle to ebb and flow over the course of time and seek to bolster and renew the warrior spirit throughout the conflict. Once a real advantage was perceived, then decision would be sought. This seeking of decision could happen very rapidly if the opportunity was available, or it could take days of desultory skirmishing and fighting before a sufficient opportunity presented itself. In summary, the tribal conflict of the Arabian Peninsula tended to be dominated by small-scale raids. These raids were not necessarily designed for conquest or opponent annihilation, but like the Midianites, they were designed to gain resources and strengthen the wealth and position of the tribe. The point of decision was the perception of dominance. The tribal warrior was not a sophisticated or educated person, but rather a typically illiterate pastoralist. He was prone to the effects of superstition and perceptions of the supernatural. He was also a fighter and or warrior made hard by a difficult and demanding climate and land. The nature of tribal warfare as not necessarily bloody with great losses is important. The first wars referred to in the small plates of Nephi were certainly tribal raids rather than the large-scale battles seen at the conclusion of the record. The purposes of these early encounters, and possibly those late into the record, may be closer to the purposes and objectives of these tribal raids. Now, let's move to the Promised Land, or the Western Hemisphere. As previously stated, this podcast is not about trying to identify the location of events in the Book of Mormon. There is neither intent nor interest in an argument about geography. This episode presents the discussions about conflict 
that it does with the goal of communicating the wide diversity of conflict that existed in the Western Hemisphere in the pre-Columbian period. Much as was true about a lack of details on the people of the Arabian Peninsula in Lehi's day, there is even less information on the people of the Americas in this same period. There is some information gleaned from archaeology, but there is no history, other than the Book of Mormon, that describes the modes, techniques, or strategies of conflict in the period coinciding with Lehi's arrival. The information in this chapter is derived, as is the information on the Arabian Peninsula, nomadic peoples, from events much later in the timeline. In this case, it is almost two millennia later. The primary records of conflict come from the efforts of Spanish-speaking Catholic priests who followed the conquistadors into Central and South America. From the fighting between Indians and the U.S. Army in the 19th century A.D., and also from North American archaeology. There is a great deal of speculation as a result of the details being derived from a period so far removed from the Book of Mormon events themselves. There is also a wide spectrum of conflict represented by these very different and disparate cultures and styles of conflict. This spectrum includes everything from small group raiding to large imperialist armies of tens of thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of warriors. This disparity is the primary reason that this brief picture is painted across so broad a geographic area. Not only was there a disparity in the size of force, but there was also a disparity in weapons, modes of combat, and motivation for war itself between the competing cultures. This is a daunting task to cover in a brief synopsis. But let's begin. The Indians of pre-Columbian North America represented hundreds of different tribes and thousands of families and clan groupings across the majority of the continent. There is significant archaeological evidence for well-developed civilizations that ceased to exist prior to the arrival of European colonists. These societies built extensive ceremonial and urban centers as well as significant fortifications. Unlike the civilizations of modern-day Mexico or Central and South America, the primary materials used for construction were earth and wood. As a result, there are few grandiose remains, though there are numerous mounds and remnants of walls and other defensive works. The fact that defensive walls were commonplace indicates a need for defense and conversely the fact that there was some capability of the opponent to attack and capture towns and cities. Unlike the defensive fortifications of the Levant, there are no remains of elaborate gatehouses. This leads to an interesting parallel in the Nephite records that refer to places of entrance, but not to gates. There are remains of weapons and forms of armor, the weapons tend to be made of natural material, stone, flint, or obsidian, though there are weapons made from metals. The armor is limited to simple protective plates. These plates may have served as ceremonial wear rather than as military protection. The Native Americans who inhabited the North American continent when the Europeans arrived had possibly already suffered from severe losses through pandemic disease brought by the Europeans and transmitted through them, their animals, or through the other native peoples with whom the Europeans made contact. 
If this theory is true, then the people who first made contact, assisted, and warred with the early European colonists were suffering from a huge demographic collapse that forced a complete transformation of any culture, including conflict-related culture, that pre-existed the pandemics. Therefore, any direct line association of conflict from the European contact to the era of Mormon, let alone Lehi, is nearly impossible. Despite this clear improbability and near impossibility, there is instructive value in identifying how the native peoples fought each other and the Europeans as they might represent conflict at the early portion of the spectrum. The primary means of conflict was raiding by small parties. The Native Americans were not interested in conquering lands and occupying in some permanent agricultural way the lands of the destroyed opponent. Though there was a lack of desire for occupation, there was also a desire and effort to destroy settlements completely. Once tribes turned fully against the Europeans, this was a war of extermination on both sides. The attacks against settlements tended to be small. This was driven by the fact that most of the settlements were small, usually in the dozens of inhabitants and combatants, and that the tribes themselves had a difficult time in marshalling large armies. This difficulty stemmed from the tribal nature of the larger culture. The warriors were more comfortable fighting alongside those of their own tribe, more so than those of a foreign tribe. Language, culture, and specific beliefs were different between the tribes, and usually warriors from another tribe were only slightly less foreign than the European opponent. This is one of the reasons why the chief Tecumseh, who lived from 1768 to 1813, was such a great politician and leader among the native tribes, as he was able to weld together an alliance that was truly rare in this particular period and location. The battles and wars of the 17th and 18th centuries were only different from those of the 19th century by the fact that the venue and geography began to change from the woodlands of the lands east of the Mississippi River to the great open grasslands of the Great Plains of North America. The changes in terrain led to changes in tactics and strategy. The native tribes also gained access over the centuries of interaction to horses and firearms, which further changed approaches to conflict. Even though there were changes to the geography and a new mobility provided by horses, the size and strategy of conflict remained generally the same. Small raids, less than 100 warriors, following a strategy very much like that used in a hunt. The last comment is critically important. The Native Americans with whom the Europeans fought tended to fight their battles along the same basic strategies as they used when coordinating a large hunt. This was most clearly displayed on the Great Plains, but it is no less true in the eastern woodlands. The various tribes of North America in this period did not have a written language to pass down strategic treatises. The primary lessons used were those derived from the collective social consciousness of the hunt. A key point is that one cannot have intricate strategy without literacy. Let's move south to Mesoamerica. Mesoamerica presents a vastly different picture than the eastern woodlands of North America. There are several reasons for this. 
First, and most important, is the fact that the conquistadors arrived to find civilizations at the pinnacle of their existence. The Aztec, the primary focus here, and Incan empires were in their prime and were in many ways equal or even superior to the Spanish men who arrived and ultimately were responsible for leading the fighting that would produce their downfall. The one great exception to these statements is the Mayan Empire of the Yucatan Peninsula and Mesoamerica proper. This civilization had collapsed prior to the arrival of the Spanish. The civilizations found and later attacked by the conquistadors were also pre-pandemic civilizations. The diseases that destroyed the peoples of North America swept through the Aztecs and the Incas in the process of the conquest and not before. The other difference of note is the fact that Catholic priests were able to take the written languages of these people and decipher them or to conduct oral interviews with those who lived before and experienced the conquest and create a written history of particularly the Aztec Empire. Thus, there is some information from which conflict comparisons can be drawn. The purposes of conflict for the Aztecs were those of nearly any empire, expansion, growth, and domination. Additionally, there was a religious component that caused armies to seek conquest so that prisoners could be brought forward for blood sacrifices to the Aztec deities. The armies that the Aztecs sent out were large by any standards, tens and maybe hundreds of thousands. Armies of this size required tremendous planning and preparation for success. Logistic stockpiles were necessary as well as march planning and coordination. Armies marching to war left at different times from the same location and moved along separate routes so that they arrived at a common place for battle at a similar time. This demonstrated extraordinary efforts by Aztec commanders and political leaders. Armies of this magnitude mean that they were facing opponents of nearly the same size and capability. Supporting armies of this size required domination of tributary or allied kingdoms along the routes of march to ensure support and peaceful movement. The armor and weapons of Mesoamerica were also remarkably different than those of North America. Warriors wore armor made of thick cotton. The armor was effective as determined by its performance in battle and its appropriateness in terms of the climate. Many of the conquistadors traded their heavy metal breastplates for the lighter weight cotton armor. In addition to this rather different form of protection, the warriors also had a different conceptualization of a sword. The swords of most cultures featured a thrusting or slicing weapon made with a long blade, typically made from a metal of some sort. This was not true in Mesoamerica, as the warriors used a wood-based sword with inserts of obsidian blades along the weapon's edge. The cutting power and sharpness of the weapon is attested to through numerous anecdotal events among the native warriors and the Spanish conquistadors. I can personally attest for the sharpness of obsidian. As a young geology student, I cut my finger nearly to the bone with one pass of an obsidian shard. They're really sharp. The importance of this brief discussion is to express the variety of weapons, armor, fortifications, and army size that existed in the Western Hemisphere prior to 
and after the arrival of the Europeans. By doing so, the intent is to express that any Levantine, Mediterranean, or even a Eurasian construction of conflict-related terms will be incomplete and probably misinformed. The emphasis on terms throughout this podcast series is on the principles of what was discussed. It is possible that Joseph Smith, a man who was educationally unaware of the variety of weapons and strategies, did not understand the wide spectrum of possibilities, and therefore he used terms with which he was familiar. Sword, scimitar, spear, javelin, shield, breastplate. None of these words are inaccurate by their very presence, but the images they may conjure in the reader's minds might be inaccurate. Each reader needs to take the time and effort to consciously avoid fixing images of Roman or Greek armor when the word breastplate is used, to abandon images of the Roman thrusting sword or Arabian scimitar, to forego standard Western designs of fortifications with gates, to basically accept the words of the Book of Mormon as it is written, rather than as we add to the text with a reader's preconceived notions and definitions of words. This discussion was limited and brief by intent. It is enough for one to appreciate that Lehi arrived in a world with a mature and unique military culture that may have shared some concepts of strategy, but it was not confined by the views of conflict in terms of strategy, arms, or armor by anything from Lehi's old home. This was its own place. The next episode provides a summary of lessons from this first part of the podcast. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.